0: I am. All right. Morning. Morning. Nathan is in Thailand doing a bunch of talks this week. So if you remember, be sure to pray for him. My name is Ryan. My wife and I, Corey, have been here for probably a little over a year and a half now. We found Emmaus to be a super warm and welcoming place, and we're happy to be here. So if you're new, welcome. I hope you guys find Emmaus to be just as warm and inviting as it has been for us. There are baskets next to the end of the aisles here. If you are new, fill out a, if you wish, fill out a welcome card. We will pray for you if you put anything down on the cards. Um, If you want to get anyone to contact you, be sure to do that too. Um, Also, we have Bibles. If you guys need a Bible, we'll have the ushers come around. Just raise your hand. We'll hand out Bibles if you need it. We are in the last week of our series called Story, When God Writes You In. we're focusing on stories in the Bible that have stood out to us for one reason or another. Either uh, you feel like you really relate to a particular point in the story, you feel like it's challenged you, it's pushed you, it's kind of made you look at the world maybe in a different way. And when the story concept was brought to me, the first uh, story that just jumped out of my mind was the story of Elijah. And it's not because of any great thing that I've done in my life, but... um, some of the lessons that Elijah learns in his life, I feel like, keep repeating and showing up in my life. So it's not any like specific point, but I'm going to share probably an early example of where it kind of related to me, and then we'll move on to the, the story of Elijah. <clears throat> so probably second grade. My grandfather, who had been in the military a lot of his life, uh, bought my brother and I these military bomber jackets with the sheep's police collars, as you can see here. That's my brother and I. I'm in second grade, my brother is probably three or four years younger than me. Um, and we love these things. My dad had, was a big history buff, and he always was watching some kind of like World War II documentary or something. So we were very familiar with the planes and the things that happened in World War II. So as soon as we got home, you can see the, the patches here on the back. As soon as we got home, we ran out in the front yard And pretended like we were in some kind of P-51 or a spitfire shooting down the the enemy, running around in the front yard, wearing our jackets. What we didn't know is that we had some new neighbors that moved in across the street. And the neighborhood kid, who's about our age, is watching through the window. And he tells a story, like he asked his mom, like, what are those boys doing? And I've got to get to know those boys. So he came up with a plan. And he noticed that our garage door was always open. And we had bikes and scooters and like a, maybe a pogo stick and some stilts like hanging out in the garage. And his plan was, what better way to get to know those new neighbor boys than to go play with their things? Because they're going to play with their things, and if I'm already there playing with their things, we can just play together. So my parents didn't think that was a great idea. I distinctly remember my dad running outside and yelling at them and running down the street after them. But it um, It worked. So we became really good friends. We went to different schools, he went to public school, my brother and I went to a private Christian school. But as soon as school was out, it was adventure time. We would ride our bikes all over the neighborhood, we found some BMX bike jumps out, I don't know, a few blocks away. There was a creek, we'd go crawdad fishing and try and catch minnows and frogs. There's a great big park. We developed a secret whistle so we wouldn't have to go knock on the doors. We could actually just whistle from across the street, and those of us who were inside would be like, ah, we're being summoned. It's time to go. <clears throat> we, um, you guys ever seen Cool Runnings, Jamaican bobsled team? Yeah. That was an inspiration to us. We decided that we were going to take a snow sled and screw it onto a skateboard. <clears throat> and then we were going to use aluminum tent poles and stick it through the sides of, the, of the, uh, the snow sled and use it as brakes or some kind of like steering mechanism. <laughs> it doesn't work, by the way. <laughs> we created obstacle courses in the neighborhood for like, the little kids who were younger than us to try and earn their way into whatever club that we had devised that week. And so they would compete to try and figure out who would win their rights to join our secret club. By the end of the week, that club would be no more, and we'd come up with a new obstacle course And the kids would have to come back and run through that obstacle course and try and compete. Our friend across the street was not very time conscious, so he would um, oftentimes be late. And in order to make sure that we could still have our adventures and play later on in the day, I was usually tasked with the one to make sure that we got home on time. I had a watch with five alarms on it so I could give the countdown. We have 20 minutes. We have 10 minutes. We have five minutes to get back home. We didn't have cell phones, so you couldn't actually call home and be like, hey, we're okay, everything's fine, we're not kidnapped. Uh, So we actually had to come home, check in with the folks, and then we'd go back out and play some more. Um, He also wasn't so good at staying on task with his homework. So in the goodness of my heart, sometimes I would go over and offer my tutoring services to make sure he got done in time so we could go run around and play before it got dark. We would spend hours out at night sometimes as we got older just talking about what adventures we were going to dream up, what uh, vacation we wanted to go to, eventually it was like what kind of car we wanted to drive once we could drive, what girls we liked at school, how we are going to convince them that we were cool. Um, and by the time high school came around, my brother and I and my family ended up moving to another part of town, so we were no longer neighbors. And we kept in touch, still talked on the phone, still would hang out and, and visit each other from time to time. But as it, as it goes, we got new friends, different hobbies. Before you know it, I felt like our life path was kind of diverging. And I would watch and see the choices he would make, and those weren't choices that I would make. And uh, before you know it, we didn't have a lot to really talk about. I started to worry about where he was going to end up in life, and if he was going to end up in the same place that we'd always talked about where we wanted to be. And I shouldn't have worried about it. He ended up marrying a wonderful Christian girl, has two wonderful kids. He was a missionary to multiple countries. Um, But at the time, I felt almost responsible for the fact that he was kind of making some of these choices. If I had tried harder, that maybe he'd make the choices that I felt like he should have made. Um, The way that Elijah fits into this picture is actually towards the end of the story of Elijah. Um, But to give a little bit of context about who Elijah is, and where he comes from. The, um, Elijah shows up in the Bible about 60 years after the time of Solomon. So we have King David, King Solomon, and in that short time we have seven other kings over Israel, none of them who are really great. And the current king is named Ahab. And he is said to have been not a good guy. In fact, the Bible says that he did more to provoke the Lord God to anger than any of the kings before him. And God had warned Israel at one point in time and said, hey, if you decide to turn away from me and worship false gods, that there'll be some penalties for that. And one of the things he said that would happen is that the rain would stop to fall on the nation and the land that God had given them. And Elijah shows up with that very promise. and He tells Ahab right away when he shows up, the rain's not going to fall until I say so. Elijah is probably one of the most powerful and significant prophets in the Old Testament. He's one of two guys who have never died. God took him to heaven before he died. There's a prophecy in Malachi that says Elijah will usher in the coming of the Messiah. This was on their minds, as you you might recognize when people come to John the Baptist and ask, hey, are you Elijah? Are you the one that was to come? The uh, Jewish Seder, Seder Passover meal, there's a spot left for Elijah in the Passover meal should he decide to just show up. Um, there is a verse in Revelation 11 that talks about two witnesses. And some of the early church fathers believed that these two witnesses, should they be actual people, one of them might actually be Elijah showing up in the end of the world. Elijah does actually show up while Jesus is on earth. He shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory is shown to the disciples. And all of a sudden, two guys appear and they're talking to him and one of them is Elijah. The way that Elijah and God tend to work <clears throat> is a little bit different as well. It almost seems, if you read the verse, that Elijah's got a bit of freedom. That there's a short leash that God kind of has on Elijah, but it's fairly loose. Almost like Elijah's calling a lot of shots. And God's like, alright, let's do that. He, um, he also has a lot of crazy things happen to him in the very short span that he shows up in 1 Kings. He's fed by ravens. He is, um, prays for a child that has died, and the child comes back to life. He uh, challenges the king of Israel. He challenges all the people of Israel, and he challenges about 850 false prophets of a false god to a showdown on top of a mountain. And the end result is that God answers his prayer and sends fire down from heaven and consumes an altar, proving that God is the God of Israel. Israel is, like, shocked, and they, hey, that is God. We're going to serve him. They end up killing all the false prophets. And Elijah ends up at the palace with the king. The thing about having a lot of freedom in the way that you operate is you can come under the illusion of thinking that you might have some control over the outcome. And Elijah is there. And the king's wife sends him a note and says, by this time tomorrow, if I have anything to do with it, you're going to be dead. And Elijah realizes a couple things. First, Israel's going to follow their king. They always have as the kings have led Israel into false idol worship, or led them back to God. On top of that, the king has no backbone when it comes to his wife, and his wife has no interest in following God. In Elijah's mind, at this point, this whole mission's been a failure. That God has set him up and said, hey, this is, this is what we need to do together. And for whatever reason, it wasn't working. So picking up in 1 Kings 19, verse 3, we see that Elijah was afraid. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. We're going to skip up to verse 8. Basically, an angel of the Lord shows up and and feeds Elijah. Elijah. So he got up and he ate and he drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also known as Mount Sinai, which you might recognize from God gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments and makes a covenant. Um, There he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, a lot of historians and some commentators believe that this cave was the exact same cave that Moses was at when God passed by and showed him his glory. I don't know if you remember the story, but there's a point where Moses says, I would like to see, see you, you know, for who you are. And God said, you can't see my face because you'll die, but I will show you my backside. So Mount Sinai is a pretty significant place. This is the place where God created the covenant with Israel. This is the place where he wrote down all the Levitical laws and that Moses spoke with God and God revealed himself to Israel. Um, during Moses' time, God showed up as a burning bush He showed up as a pillar of fire to lead the Israelites to the wilderness during the night so they could see. He showed up as a pillar of smoke during the day. When he was on Mount Sinai, it was like on fire, and it said smoke rose to the heavens like it was a furnace. And when God spoke, it was as if thunder was in the air and uh, the earth quaked. So you can imagine, this is what Elijah's thinking about while he's here. Like this is where God acts, where God steps out and manifests himself in great and mighty ways there's Mount Sinai. And another picture of it. I would imagine Elijah looking out from the cave and seeing all this. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah has some complaints, but first a justification. He replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Nate talked about Phinehas. And one of the things that God complimented Phinehas on was that he had been as zealous for God's honor as God had been. And Elijah hasn't done anything wrong. He has been zealous for God. But this kind of sets up his, actual, his other two statements. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So Elijah recognizes that he's done everything he could to serve God. He's been passionate about God. He's followed the call in his heart that God has given him. The Israelites have not accepted the message and now he's it. It's just him. He's by himself. So the Lord says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Sweet. Here we go. This is the moment. Moses had this happen and now it's Elijah's turn. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Some translations translate this as a uh, fragile voice of silence. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, And went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? If I was Elijah, my thought would be, This conversation's not going the way I thought it would go. And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So the Lord says to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram, also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as prophet. I've had a problem with that conversation for a while. Because it can feel like Elijah is this great prophet is doing everything he can for God. He's frustrated. He has no answers. And so he runs to God. And God basically says, okay, Elijah, we're going to take your role and now we're going to give it to a bunch of other people. No, good job, my good and faithful servant. No, uh, hey, that's too bad. Sucks. Um... And it can feel like Elijah's got a demotion at this point. And there's no real conceivable reason why he should have gotten one. But here's the thing. I came to this realization a while ago that Elijah's story is four chapters in a book that's 22 chapters long. And that's one book in the middle of 66 books that make up our Bible. And the Bible is the word of God giving this narrative about who God is and what he's doing Over through the course of time. So, really, Elijah's not the main character of the story. God's the main character of the story. And so, what do we learn from God through this conversation? And I believe that Elijah actually walked away from this mountain with a lot of hope and a lot of joy. The first thing we notice I skipped that whole part of the verse. That's all right. Actually, this is significant. So after God had said, anoint Elisha, he says, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. That's the part that's actually significant for the next part I was going to talk about. The first thing we notice from that conversation with God is that Elijah's perspective is not the full picture. He doesn't see everything that's going on. And he thinks he thinks he's there we go. He thinks he's the only one. But the fact of the matter is there's 7,000 other people that God has protected that have never bowed down to Baal. And that's actually gives us a lot of hope. Because even though if you're going through a situation where you don't know what's going on and everything just looks depressing, the fact of the matter is your perspective doesn't cover it all, which is good. Because you can know that God's got a bigger perspective. And he can see things that we can't see. And he knows how things are going to turn out even if we don't. And the second thing is that God's goals will be accomplished. Elijah seems to think that it's his job to start and finish what God wants to do. And yet God is saying, I'm going to have you do this part. I'm going to have Jehu do this part. I'm going to have, i uh, blanking on his name, do this part. And Elisha do this part. And in the end, God's going to complete his goals. Sometimes he uses us start to finish. Sometimes he uses us as just a little bit part and a greater story. Um, as I look at some of these events and this theme that is running through the story of Elijah, I recognize different areas in my life where it's come back to revisit me. Um, <clears throat> I had a family member when I was growing up he spent a lot of time and money investing into a call that God had put on his life, and he followed a career path that God had called him to. And then later, at no fault of his own, that career path was ripped away from him. Um, <clears throat> Corey, when, when Corey and I got pregnant with what we thought would be one kid ended up being two kids, uh, we were reading about how many twin moms go on bed rest. We are like, we're not going to have that happen. <laughs> so changed our diet, we changed our exercise routines, doing everything we can to give these guys the best shot at going full term without mom having to go on bed rest, That was possible. We did a tour in the hospital, we went by the NICU, and we we're like, we're not coming back here, we don't need to worry about that. Well, as it turns out, she did go on bed rest, and one of the little guys decided he was going to be born early, so she ended up having the kids seven and a half weeks early, and they spent three and a half weeks in the NICU. Um <clears throat> For six or seven years, I worked at a small church plant down in Elk Grove. And we started with a pretty big vision of where we were going to go and how it was going to turn out. And uh, we just saw God kind of like confirming several things for us. But after two years, we were still sitting in the middle of a living room of someone's house and never had more than 30 people ever show up to our service. In each of those scenarios, we didn't do anything wrong. We were following... The path that we felt we needed to follow. We felt God was with us, but things didn't turn out the way we expected. Sometimes we need to recognize that results don't always equal success. That we're really good at setting goals and trying to figure out how we get to a certain point, and we view when we get to that point, that is the definition of success. But with God, He doesn't necessarily care about those results, He cares about our hearts and our obedience and who we are and how we trust in Him. Because if we knew exactly how to get to where we wanted to go and how we're going to accomplish everything, we wouldn't need any faith. Sometimes what we define as success is something that we've defined as success. Um, So summarizing kind of these last few weeks of going through story, you can see a lot of themes. Melissa talked about obedience in the moment and recognizing that uh, that geography is not a problem for God. He can put you wherever he needs you, and sometimes where he needs you is right where you are. To look for those opportunities to pray for someone, to say, ask someone, hey, how can I pray for you? Um, Nate talked about recognizing that we serve a God who knows us, who sees us and hears us. And that's good not just for our own recognition, but to pass that on to the people that we come in contact with. I was, doing, uh, I was walking on the streets doing some a homeless outreach thing and talking to a guy. And I was like, hey, can I pray for you? And he goes, you need to go out and tell people that they can pray to God themselves. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, obviously, but there's nice having people pray with you. That's kind of what we're trying to do. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, they have the line to God. He goes, it's great what you're doing, but what happens when you're not here? They need to know that God hears them and sees them, and that they can pray to him. Kind of made me think for a minute. Um, Nate talked about being zealous for God's honor, the story of Phinehas I mentioned earlier, and how we be zealous not only in the way that we live our own lives, how, is our, how are our lives honoring God, but then how we treat other people, how we love them like God called us to love them, and recognize that no one is beyond God's reach. He can change anyone. And wrapping it up, when things don't go the way you expect, that's okay. Because God's in control. He sees more than we see. His goals will be accomplished. And he calls you his own. Let's pray. Lord, um, give us the strength to see when we don't see. Give us the faith to hold strong when we just don't know what's around the next corner. Um, Give us confidence to know that we're serving you and despite any kind of results, give us the strength to know that uh, following you is all that's really important. Thank you for for dying for us, for caring for us, for giving us value and making us a part of your family. Amen. All right, well if you want to stand up with me real quick, Um, this part of the service right now we call the passing of the peace, where we take some time to pass the peace of Christ to each other. And then we come back a little bit to uh, have some communion and to spend some time in some more worship. So, uh, may the peace of Christ be always with you.